This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture, brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to the table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And to my right, probably your left as you're looking at the screen, is Millicy Pipkin, who also works at the center, our, uh, our co-host. So good. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to have you, Millicy. And we, our topic today is misconceptions about conception. We want to deal with the way in which conception is often discussed, but also deal with uh, the misconceptions that often come in those discussions. And so we have three guests uh, out of uh, out of the scientific background to discuss this with us. Uh, first is Dr. William Lyle, who is <laughs> nicknamed the pro-life doc, is what I have here. He's board certified in obstetrics and gynecology. He practices medicine both in Florida and Alabama and founded Pro-Life Doc, Inc., and has dedicated his life to, to stopping abortion. He functions as a member of the Focus on the Family Physicians Research Council and a medical advisor for Priests for Life and a member of the Heartbeat International Medical Advisory Council. So, Bill, welcome to our show. Oh, it's an honor to be here. Thank you very much. We're just going to share how we treat the preborn as patients, and if they're patients, they have rights, and that a patient is a person, no matter how small. Okay, well, we'll go there in just a second. My second guest is uh, Dr. Tara Sander-Lee, who studied heart development at Harvard Medical School and for many years directed Medical College Research Lab investigating congenital heart disease in children. Um, she has spoken out on pro-life legislation and sharing science related to life. Uh, when she did this, she received pressure from the university, so eventually founded uh, the, Lozier, the Charlotte Lozier Institute. We'll be talking more about the institute in a, in a minute. And I believe she's vice president for, and I'll let you fill in the blank, Dr. Lee. Uh-huh. Vice President and uh, Director of Life Sciences. Director of Life Sciences. Great. Mm -hmm. So thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. And then third on our list is Dr. Ingrid, is it Scope or Dr. Scop? Okay, yeah, I knew I would botch that. Okay. He's a board-certified OBGYN practicing in Texas and San Antonio, so a fellow Texan. We always like to greet fellow Texans for 30 years, and this delivered more than 5,000 babies, so you keep count as it goes, huh? And... uh, uh and she has firsthand experience in treating women with complications with the abortion pill, including performing emergency surgery on a woman who showed up in her emergency room earlier this year after bleeding for more than a month. Um, she has done extensive research on the harms caused by the abortion pill and uh, uh, has been part of an amicus brief filed in the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine versus the FDA in the chemical abortion lawsuit. She also works at the Lozier Institute and is vice president for, and I'll let you fill in the blank, because these are all new promotions that you all got. 
Yeah, Vice President and Director of Medical Affairs. Okay, Director of Medical Affairs. Uh, great. So thank you for being with us. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So let, let's start in, in the South. Ladies go first. So, um, um, so um, Tara, how did, how did you get into um, your interest in this area? And talk a little bit about your expertise, anything that I didn't already supply. Uh, well, you did a fantastic job of, um, of giving my background, you know, as a scientist. I mean, for years, for decades, um, I was knee deep in science and, and discovering just the, the beauty of God's creation. And as you mentioned, I focused on heart development um, at Harvard Medical School after I received my PhD. And then I continued that work into directing my own research lab and then also a clinical lab that then tested children. Um, that uh, once they were born and they, they were suspected that they had congenital heart disease, then we performed different diagnostic tests. And so I, for years I was doing this work. And um, I just, the, the more I started to do in science, the more I started to realize that um, the vulnerable were really not being protected. And I started seeing this impact um, my work and things that I was being asked to do, things that I was being asked to support. Um, at the university, and it was just one day an email came across my desk um, asking scientists to support, um, to actually go to, to not support legislation that was going, um, that was in the state that was going to, uh, that was going to ban the use of aborted fetal tissue. Um, so basically saying that it was okay to, to use these babies and to, um, to take their aborted body parts and just use them um, for their own benefit and not even give them any regard and dignity as human beings. Uh, and so I, I, the Holy Spirit just convicted me that it was time to speak up. And I mean, there were many other things that were kind of building up to this, but um, it was just, it was time for me to speak up and be a voice for the voiceless. And so I started to testify in the state um, in either support or opposition of bills, uh, depending on how much protection there was going to be for the unborn. And then that's when I, um, that's when I found the, the Charlotte Lozier Institute. And the more I started speaking up, um, my institution did not like that. And they, they did put pressure on me to stop speaking. And they even changed the school policy, um, so that it would make it more difficult for me to speak. Um, and I just knew that God had really placed it on my heart to, to not stop the speaking, to not stop speaking and to, um, keep standing up for the unborn. And so, um, I, I made a decision, um, with much prayer and, um, with much prayer, I knew that God was guiding me to step down from my position and to do this full time. And so that's what I've been doing, uh, <laughs> for about seven years. Is, and so, um, I now do scientific research, legislative testimony, presentations, writings that, you know, help to educate policymakers and the public on the value and undeniable humanity of every life from fertilization until natural death. Okay. Well, that's, um, appreciate the background. And that's an interesting story. We may come back to some of that because I think, um, the whole issue of how to speak to this and, and the free speech of just the exchange of ideas is an important part of the environment of this conversation. Um, Ingrid, what, what, how did you get into this? Well, you know, from birth, I've been a member of a pro-life family. I'm the oldest of six children, now 21 grandchildren. Uh, so my family always welcomed children, and I, I adore children. As an obstetrician, I feel like I have the best job in the world because I have two patients, a mother and her unborn child. 
And over the years, I have advocated for both of those patients. But I've been saddened, of course, that so many obstetricians don't see it that way and consider the, the unborn child to be their patient only if the mother wants them to. And so over the years, I've become more and more outspoken. I've done a lot of research, writing, um, testifying on the issue. Um, similar to Tara, as I became more and more outspoken, I uh, received um, more and more dissatisfaction from my partners um, about my outspokenness. And so as a result, um, I also was called to join Charlotte Lozier Institute full time. Um, and two months after I joined, uh, the Dobbs decision came down. And so it has been nonstop. I'm so glad that I do have the opportunity to do what needs to be done to advocate both for the unborn children, but also for their mothers. Because over the years, I've seen so many women hurt by abortion. And so that's the story that I want to tell. It does, it, it does, it's not just deadly for the unborn child, but it is absolutely devastating for the women who undergo abortions. Okay, and Bill, your background, yeah. how did you get into this? <clears throat> Fell in love with obstetrics and gynecology in med school because it's the only time somebody is excited about going to the hospital. And in 1999, the practice that I took over was actually the largest provider of abortions on the Florida panhandle. We had a restrictive covenant that he signed, and so when we took over the practice for the next two years, he couldn't practice any medicine at all in our tri-county area. It was on a Sunday after church. Went to the office to tour the upstairs, which is where the abortion clinic was, and all the surgical abortions were performed. Saw all the instrument suction machine all laid out for the next uh, day of abortions, and I just knew that we were always planning on stopping all abortions and all referrals, but it was that moment that I realized there was a lot more that we had the ability to do. We're on the same road as Pensacola Christian College, thousand-member churches across the street. So we started to speak at different local churches, and now we'll be out of state probably 50 times this year, sharing at pregnancy resource centers, uh, doing expert witness testimony in legislative bodies, but also churches, because this is a spiritual battle. And one of the things we'll focus on is how we treat the preborn as patients. And if they're a patient, they're a person. But we are doing blood transfusions to babies in the womb at 18 weeks, open heart surgery, spina bifida corrective surgery, laser vascular surgery, the way that medicine has advanced where we aren't just visualizing these babies in the womb that were created in the image of God at that moment of conception, not when they were you know, born, but at conception is when they were created in the image of God. But there are patients and patients have rights, and we're there to educate our you know, viewers and our listeners and to teach and to train to give them new tools to defend God's preborn. Okay, well, that's that's a great introduction uh, as to how you all are interested in this. Let me let me ask one kind of pre-question before we actually talk about the process of conception and how we should think about it, um, and and that's this. Um, you know, Dobbs uh, represented the reversal of Roe v. Wade, but um, so how much have things changed, and how much have things remained the same? And uh, I'm not sure who to who to direct this to. Um, uh, uh, Tara, why don't you take that on? How much, as we think about what's happening legally and where we are, because um, I think some people think the reversal of Roe v. Wade was kind of the 
end of the conversation. It's actually in some ways the beginning. So right. So yeah. It, go ahead. Yeah, it definitely is uh, just the beginning because now you know the battle that we had at the federal front is now at the state. And so now we have this battle going on in every state where um, people are trying to reach consensus on where they believe they should stand when it comes to this issue. And so we see that some states are, are standing firm and saying we are going to try to enact these laws that we wanted to before Dobbs. And we're going to go as far back as, you know, whether it be at the time we can detect a heartbeat at the time where we can detect at six weeks, at the time where we can detect pain, uh, where we know that babies can feel pain as early as 15 weeks. And so every state is trying to find that that place um, where they are reaching consensus to protect the, the unborn. And of course, we see some states that don't want any protections, right? They want to allow abortion um, up until the moment of birth. And so they and and so the battle is continuing in that we, we are going into the states. We are, um, we are educating these legislators just like we were before, but it's now a ground game. It's a real ground game in helping the people because who they, who they elect is going to have serious consequences as to the laws that are, that are passed in their state. And so I think that's the major difference. Um, is a, it's just a much more of a ground game now. And then, but what's the same thing is that, you know, the human being hasn't changed. The same is that this is the same human being that was before Dobbs that, you know, we were advocating for that was created in the image of God, that is a human being from the very moment of conception and, you know, that has a heartbeat by six weeks. And so there's, there's no difference in that sense. Um, and so we continue to advocate for that, for that unborn child trying, you know, and then God willing that as many children are saved as possible. And I think it's also important to just realize that what also hasn't changed is the deception from the left. I mean, they, um, in order to continue to advocate for the deliberate destruction of an unborn child inside a mother's womb, they still continue to try to convince others that the unborn child is not a real human being. And so we see the same rhetoric, you know, the same lies being told that, well, that baby at six weeks doesn't actually really have a heartbeat, um, despite, you know, you know, publications, textbooks that say otherwise you know, continue to say that, you know, actually the unborn child, even at conception, that that's, that's not a real human being. And so I think those are the same. We're, we're still combating those same. Yeah, we're going to come back to uh, we're mm -hmm. going to come back to to sorting that out out for people. Uh, just to explain the background here and why this is a ground game. And Bill, you can comment. Um, uh, what's happened with the decision, of course, is is that is that as was noted, the federal level um, was reversed, but now this has been passed on to the states as a legal issue. So each state is now deciding what its policy will be with regard to um, mothers carrying children and and all the laws that you're hearing about and the different. How can I say this? The different termination points or inception points for the legal process um, are being debated state by state. And that's basically what's going on now, right, Bill? Well, we're back where we were in the 1860s as a nation. In the 1860s, if slavery was evil and bad in New Jersey, then it was just as evil and bad in Mississippi. And we ended up going to a civil war over the issue. Now we're looking at abortion. And if abortion is evil in Mississippi, then 
abortion is evil in New Jersey as well. So it's a lot of the battle is you know education, letting the voters realize that these are our patients. They are genetically unique. They are our patients that we are treating both medically and surgically. We're healing them and diagnosing them. But if something is evil, it is evil. And it doesn't all of a sudden become good just because it crossed the state border. Evil is evil in the sight of the Lord. And that's where the battle is going to be. But this is a spiritual battle. As far as the basic foundation, we know that we are created in the image of God, and abortion is an attack on that image of God. It's the same thing as if somebody hates the United States, they can't destroy the United States, so what do they want to do? They want to burn the American flag. Why? Because the American flag represents the image of the United States. From the moment of conception, the baby represents the image of God. So an attack and killing the image of God is their way of attacking God himself. So it is a spiritual battle. It's great having doctors, gynecologists, and politicians being engaged in this, but this should really be led by our pastors and our pulpits because it is a spiritual battle. Yeah, let the gynecologists and the politicians come in, but the spearhead should really be coming from the church. So um, so let's uh, let's turn our attention to some of the science here because I think this is important. Uh, the One of the challenges, of course, that we have in this conversation is that you have people for whom there is no um, theological orientation to the conversation. Uh, they are operating either as uh, out of a secular background or whatever. And so, um, so thinking about the religious dimensions of this works for Christians and helps Christians, but it's a challenge for someone who doesn't have a theological bone in their body, So, at least in terms of the way they see the world. So, um, so let me ask it this way, um, and let's talk about conception uh, scientifically. Um, the, the classic question is, when does life begin? And, uh, and and when does it start? And Ingrid, I'm going to let you take a shot at this since the other two got their turn on the last round. Um, when does life begin? And then I'm going to have you all speak into this because this is actually the key starting point for this conversation, even from a scientific point of view. So when does life begin? Yeah, absolutely. So at the moment the sperm fertilizes the egg, a new human life begins. It has its own unique genetic makeup, unlike either of its parents, because it's a combination of their genes um, in a different way. And he immediately begins to display all of the signs of life that we know it. He begins rapidly growing. The cells begin dividing. He metabolizes. He utilizes nutrients. Um, he um and just and and differentiates and you know it's it goes back to the whole euphemisms the abortion industry likes to call that process a fertilized egg sort of giving it ownership to the woman but it's at the moment of fertilization it becomes a zygote the first stage of an embryo the first stage of a new human life all these lines that we draw are sometimes lines that are drawn pro- pragmatically, you know, a heartbeat or pain or, or areas where people are able to get on board and say, I'll, I'll protect the life at that point. But there is no scientific debate. In fact, 96 biologists surveyed, 5,000 biologists said, this is the beginning of a human life. So it is not scientifically um, controversial at all. Yeah, I'm. Um, uh, I'm going to ask you others if you want to add in, but I'll just say uh, I'm on the Wheaton board, 
and we had a lawsuit that we filed uh, as well. We were amicus members to this um, about coverage for uh, abortifacia uh, medicines uh, in. And we wanted to be exempt from that as a Christian institution. And, I, and we did, as a board, the study on the science side of how conception is viewed. And one of the things that I learned in the midst of doing this was, from a scientific point of view, the idea of, of a life being a life from the moment of conception was scientifically accepted. Uh, as a given, which uh, struck me in light of the debates that I was hearing in the public space as um, not what I was necessarily expecting. So, um, Tara, you or Bill want to add anything to the the question? So when does life begin? The only thing I would add would be to change the question slightly as far as when does new life begin? Because the sperm is obviously alive because, my goodness, it's swimming. The egg is a living cell from the mother. They just each happen to have half of the genetic material because they are gametes. And so there is life, but then when they come together, there is new life. And then the first thing that that new life starts to do, and the genetics of that new life, even at that one cell level, are unique from mom and dad. They're unique from the other 7 billion people on the planet. And then they start to divide 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64. And then amazingly, even though they all have the exact same DNA, they start to do something called differentiate. Cellular differentiate where a cluster of cells will say, you know what? I don't want to just be an exact copy of you. I want to start forming the GI system or the neurologic system or the cardiovascular system. I mean, I can tell you what's going to happen on day 18 and what's going to happen on day 19, but how these individual cells know what pages of the DNA they're going to start to follow, it's like there was a blueprint and they are going to follow page this and then page that. That is an amazing miracle that just says there was an amazing architect and designer. And as believers, we know that's God. But as scientists, we know that there is structure and there is form. And it's not just a life. It is a new life. Even at 10 weeks, there are one billion cells in that new life that is growing and developing. So the point uh, I think that that is being made here is that everything that leads to to life and and if I can say it this way, the independent life of the child coming when the child is born is already all there from the very beginning. That's exactly right. Yeah. And and I would just add too that you know, there are what's called these Carnegie stages of human development that were first established in 1942, and they've since been expanded, but they remain the standard used by all biologists to describe the first eight weeks of the, of the baby's human life, that first embryonic period. And guess what? The very first stage is the moment of fertilization, sperm egg fusion, like we've talked about, that, that indicates that's when that human life begins. Um, and, and I think, and a human being meets the description of what a human or what an organism is, a living organism. And so, you know, features of an organism are that the development, autonomy, adaption, and integration, and the human being meets all of those criteria at the very moment of sperm egg fusion. So uh, I've heard uh, I've heard you all say. In fact, you did this when you were saying how you got into this. That that, that you are caring in your mind for two patients when a woman walks in and says, you know, I'm pregnant, um, and and 
that's an important concept as well. So um, we're dealing with misconceptions about conception. Obviously, one of the misconceptions is is that somehow life comes later than the moment of conception. Uh, that that is one misconception. What other misconceptions do you think people have about about the conception process? And well, that's one a, of the things that's why, go ahead, Bill. That, one of the things that's amazing as far as scientific advances is that it used to be a big thrill to be able to do an ultrasound and see if it's not going to be a boy or going to be a girl, but if it's a boy or if it's a girl right then. And we can do that with an ultrasound 16, 17 weeks. Now we have a blood test that's taken from the mom. It's called a panorama test. And what's amazing is it actually can look at little fragments of DNA from the baby because from the moment of conception, they are unique mom and baby. Nine 95% of these fragments came from the mom, but we can now separate out and see the five fragments that came from the baby that are in the mom's blood that cross over into her circulation. With more than 99% accuracy, seven weeks after the moment of conception, I can tell you if that is a boy or is a girl. So it's, and unfortunately, some people will use that information if it wasn't the gender that they wanted to, to use the abortion pill to terminate that pregnancy. But science is always catching up with where God is. But if we can do tests that are safe, that can determine boy-girl. If we can do surgical treatments to cure babies in the womb and save their lives, and that is advancing on a regular basis, whether it is blood transfusions or any of the other amazing advances in surgeries, a patient's a person, no matter how small, and your geographic location does not either give you your rights or deny you your rights. Just like if you have twins, there's something called a delayed interval delivery where you can have one identical twin that's born and goes to the NICU and the second identical twin from the same egg and sperm stays on the inside. There have been cases where you have identical twins, one is in the NICU, one is in the womb, and we try to keep them, them in the environment that they do best in. And there have been cases where there has been a six-week separation of the delivery of identical twins. Hmm. The baby that's in the NICU has rights and protection. The baby that's in the womb, a couple hundred feet away, should have the same rights and protection. Hmm. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive, Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us, written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com slash audio to learn more. So let me, let me ask a question this way, and this is a variation of the first question, but I think it's the way sometimes it might get asked. And that is, um, and, and, and uh, the way I ask the question will probably prejudice the question, but that's okay. Why is viability not the answer to this question about how we treat the, the, um, the child in the womb? I would say it comes down to patients' rights because we are doing life-saving surgery 
on babies in the womb before they are quote-unquote viable on the outside. So if we can perform open-heart surgery and we can perform spina bifida corrective surgery, laser vascular surgery, and even give them blood transfusions way before they can survive on the outside, viability is no longer a threshold. It really comes down to patients' rights and individual rights. We're created in the image of God. Even our Declaration of Independence says that we have rights that are we are endowed by certain rights from our creator. And so and that's capitalized, you know, in our Declaration of Independence. But rights and patients have rights, and whether they're in the womb, outside of the womb, whether they are viable six weeks from now, they're still a patient, and I we absolutely, still need to protect them. I absolutely love this conversation, thanking you all once again for being here and hearing what you're doing in the world of science uh, to um, bring forth medical research, medical proofs that life begins um, in the womb. And for all of us here as believers, as Bill has stated, you know, we look to Jeremiah 1.5, of course, where we find that the, the scripture that everybody knows so, oh so well, that before I formed you in the womb, I knew you before you were born, I sanctified you and I ordained you a prophet to the nations. And so I think it's so important to us theologically to look also as well that God, yes, life is created, life is in the image of God, but God does this even before the child is even conceived. God already knows this is coming to pass. And the reason why I'm kind of jumping in here, and I, time is going to be limited here, we do want to get out the uh, science information, but theologically we want to educate people, as Dr. Baca just earlier stated, that so many times people make the disconnect. It's 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 kind of like they see... Um, they use this as an, as an excuse that it's not life yet. They, they use the life for that uh, to justify the means. So my thing is, how do we get to a point where we educate people, women, to help them to see that, that this is life, this is God's love, and, and it's not to be, be disregarded? And I think that Theologically, we can do that if you're in the Word of God, but how do we do that on the ground? You know, because you guys are probably looking at some type of barrier where you can share the Word of God to some degree. So I'm just looking at how can we get there, because to me, I think that's very, very important. Yeah, and I think it's a really good point, and I think you're right, especially because we know, like you said, that the Word of God says that, you know, these are God's children, right? These are God's children that He created, um, and they're not even our own. And so, but I think what ends up happening then when we're talking to people scientifically that, that don't believe in the Word of God, it's really important for us to help them understand that f the form or the function of a human being does not determine their value, Right. And so I think we have to remind them sometimes that, you know, if we put that distinction on a, the value of the human being on whether how well they're formed, how well they're developed, how well they function, then we're basically saying that that we're not equal just because we're human beings. We're equal based on our abilities. So then we're saying like, well, that maybe, you know, um, an individual that, that has all of their abilities and maybe is in the prime of their life in their 20s are somehow more valuable. And we know that that's not true. And so I think we have to remind people that, you know, even human beings, their brains are not fully developed until they're about 25, right? Um, and that that doesn't somehow make them more valuable, that 
a person's form and function does not determine a value. And then that's where I think we do have to remind them that our, where does our dignity come from? And I think it is an amazing opportunity then to preach the word of God and, and really let the Holy Spirit work in their lives. Because at the end of the day, this really is a heart issue. This isn't a pro-life or a pro-choice issue. This is changing hearts and minds about the humanity and dignity of every human life, not because of we, what we say. So science just confirms what scripture says. But it really is what God says, and this really is an opportunity to preach the word. And, and but you're right; it is. It becomes a challenge when we have somebody that is going to deny the word of God. I see this somewhat as um, we know that this is a lie, or at least we believe it's a lie that the enemy can tell someone. I love Bill um, saying that this is um, spiritual. It's spiritual warfare. And so for me, I wonder how much of this has to do with fear. And I know we're talking about the misconception of conception. And so we want to be right there. But I just want to move it a little bit further, even if we go back and forth to how much of this is the woman in fear of what comes after the life that she gives. And what can we do to quail or squash that and replace it with the truth that truth that sets her free that may help her to embrace the life that she's carrying and not want to abort it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think pregnancy resource centers have really been leading the way. I mean, pregnancy resource centers were at first just doing pregnancy tests. Now you can get them at the dollar store. Then they started to use ultrasound to show that life on the inside, even at uh, just six weeks gestation. But now they're really meeting the needs. They're meeting, yes, their spiritual needs. They're meeting the, the spiritual needs of the dads, but they're there with them during the pregnancy, providing them counseling, com- com- providing them with the physical needs that they're going to need to support that baby. But a lot of them even have maternal homes now where they are bringing them in for housing, job training, education, and then allowing them to stay there afterwards and until they get up on their feet. So yeah, pregnancy can be scary, but this is the role of the church to look at somebody with a need, meet that need, and be there for them and help them to become independent. Yes, step one is sharing the gospel with them. Step two is going to be to meet their needs, to realize that they love them, Jesus loves them, and in this spiritual battle, if we don't leave with love, then we're just not going to be victorious. It's about love, it's about truth. Absolutely, and I'm so glad you brought that up, Bill. The only thing I would say, and I love, love, love the resources that are available today that may not have been available uh, days gone by with this, but for me, I guess it's almost like the reverse. We know that we meet the person's need and then we share the gospel because, yeah, because we eradicate some of that fear where a person is, um, maybe they're not a believer or maybe they are a believer, but they're believing the lie instead of the truth. So I think we have to put forth the the kill the fear um, and replace it with what is being done to uh, give the woman the dignity, not take it away from her, remove the fear and encourage her that there are programs, there are plans, there, there are homes, there are opportunities, there are resources here that you don't have to have that fear. And so I think we just it, personally, I just feel like we need to reach that part of this, because if those things are available now, then they need to know that that there are options. There, yeah, there the is resources a, yeah. are not just for believers. I mean, it's right. like John Quincy Adams says, "Duty is ours, results are God's." And so, yes, we provide those resources. We meet their needs. We yes. do share the gospel. If they accept the Amen. gospel, 
fantastic. Maybe they won't accept the gospel now. Maybe we just planted a seed. But our duty is to share, yes, we're going to meet their needs, every need that they have, and every excuse they might have out of love. And that starts the conversation. But then, you know, of course, follow up with the gospel, because that's going to be not just a treatment, that's going to be the cure. So um, our time is flying. I know I've got at least two other issues I want to address, but I want to stay here for just a second. And that is, it, it also is the case that there are many options for a woman beyond termination. In other words, that that rather than choosing to get an abortion, um, and you know what some people fear in having the child is, I'm not prepared to raise a child, or I'm not in a situation where I can raise a child. Those kinds of of reasons can kind of sometimes come in as a reason for getting an abortion. Um, and uh, in fact, there are all kinds of possibilities for the woman who carries to term who finds or thinks that she's in that kind of a situation. One of the things that the pregnancy resource centers do is to help a woman think through that process of decision-making, et cetera, and to provide support to her until she brings the child to term. So a quick question, I want a short answer to this, because there are a couple of other issues I want to be sure we get to, and that is, what are the options besides termination for a woman? In other words, that, that, that means that she isn't going to terminate the child. And that may be, sound like an obvious, there might be an obvious answer to this question, sure. but I want the obvious answer. <laughs> uh, Ingrid, I'm going to let you answer this one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, as has been discussed, with support, many women do feel like they now can carry their child to term. Um, the support of the man is probably the, the primary reason that women opt for termination is that fathers have been, been negligent in their duties. Um, and of course, um, the other option is that a woman can make a plan for adoption, which is a hard thing to do, but in, in the last 10 years as an obstetrician, I've probably had only one or two women that I've cared for that have placed a child um, to be adopted. So there are so many families desperate for children, and unfortunately, it is um, something that so few women do consider, um, but with with the, with the support of the church and of these crisis pregnancy centers, these women can fully explore all of these options. Awesome. That's great. That, and that's actually the point I wanted to, to be made, is that there is an option for uh, a woman carrying a child to term, and if she really feels like she can't care for the child or is in a situation she couldn't care for the child, there are lots of people who would be willing right. to take in a child and, and raise it, and the life ends up being preserved in the process, and, and, and hopefully finding a home that will care for the child well in its, in its, in its life. So let me. Uh, there are a couple of things that I want to that I want to I want to come to the other end of of conception in some ways because one of the controversies that now is swirling around the abortion discussion is what has been nicknamed, I guess, the morning after pill and things that are associated with that and the effect of women who decide to get an abortion. Those are the two issues I kind of want to get on the table and discuss before we wrap up. So let's deal with the morning after pill and. Um, and in particular, I have a specific question, and that is, most people think that the after-morning pill is, I can say this, irreversible. So let me ask, is that true? And Bill, I think this question is for you. 
Well, I think we, first we have to differentiate and define the difference between the morning after pill and the abortion pill. They're very different in their mechanism. Okay, good. The, the morning after pill is indicated for the morning after a woman has had intercourse. And it works by forcing her to have a menstrual cycle. So if an egg and a sperm happen to get together and they're making their way through the tube down to the lining of the uterus, the pregnancy will not be able to implant because the lining of the uterus will shed. How is that different from the abortion pill that we are hearing so much about? The abortion pill is not the morning after. The abortion pill is indicated for up to 70 mornings after, and it blocks a very important hormone called progesterone. If you get a big word, break it down to little words to understand it. Progesterone. It's a progestational steroid hormone. So when a woman gets pregnant, her body is celebrating, and the conductor, the coach of the pregnancy is a hormone called progesterone. That Everything that's good about a pregnancy is because of progesterone. The abortion pill blocks the signal from that hormone. And so progesterone levels were going up, which is normal, and now they're going down. And how do we reverse that? We reverse that by replacing the progesterone, the same hormone that we use when somebody had a miscarriage and then got pregnant again. Have a miscarriage, she might have a condition where her body is not making enough progesterone. So we give her supplemental progesterone. It is made from yams and soybeans, and it is bioidentical to what the woman makes. Whenever somebody has triplets and quadruplets, standard of care, give them progesterone to keep the pregnancy going. When somebody has IVF, they have embryos that the body wasn't expecting these embryos to get transferred into the uterus. We give them progesterone because it's progestation. It keeps the pregnancy going. So when a woman makes uh, the wrong choice and she regrets it and says, just like if somebody took fentanyl and they overdosed, we reverse that with Narcan. It is the antidote. So when a woman makes a decision and she takes the abortion pill, we can reverse the effect of the abortion pill safely for the mom, safely for the baby, and we are successful 70% of the time. We have a network of over you know, 500 doctors that we've trained in these protocols, and we have documented over 4,000 successful reversals, which, I mean, from a spiritual standpoint, this <laughs> is the God. message of redemption. Yes. <laughs> we, were, we were all heading to hell and eternal separation from God, but we are bought back with the blood of Jesus. When it comes to the abortion pill, this baby is facing a 98% chance of dying. Do we you know, buy it back. Yeah, but we buy it back with, in our area, it's $109 worth of this medicine called progesterone, Prometrium. We buy the life back. And I mean, I've delivered quads and triplets and, you know, it's amazing. But I remember every single one of the reversals because that baby was heading to death and we safely reversed that. That is something that's very special. The abortion pill is now the dominant method of abortion here in the United States. At least 54% of all the abortions are with the abortion pill. In some countries in Europe, it's over 90%. But it's dangerous for the baby, but it's also dangerous for the mom because the number one killer of women in the first trimester of pregnancy that's pregnancy-related is still a ruptured ectopic or tubal pregnancy. And we're having more and more cases of women who took the abortion pill thought it was going to solve their issue, but the pregnancy was not in the uterus. It was in the tube, and that happens 1% of the time. So they're told, you're going to have bleeding, cramping, and pain. Here are your pills. Well, they have bleeding. They have cramping. They have pain, but it's not 
because of the abortion pill. It's because of a life-threatening ectopic tubal pregnancy. And that's the difference between the morning after pill, which is the morning after, and the abortion pill, which is 70 mornings after. But we can safely reverse it and redeem the life of that baby. Okay, so that's an important uh, detail. Let me. The last thing that I want to cover. I, I can't believe how fast this has gone. Um, the last thing that I want to cover is the effect on women uh, who who either decide to get an abortion, or who are impacted by the uh, by the procedure of abortion. Uh, either either way. And um, Tara, I want you to speak into that I, I, because I there is. There is an afterlife to this decision, if I can say it that way, uh, that most people don't talk about very much. So let's let's talk about that dimension uh, of this equation. And I'm sure all of you have experience uh, with with women who have um, who've gone through a process that they've either come to regret or it's produced uh, problems for them as a result of the procedure, et cetera. So, uh, Tara, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, I think just real briefly, I'll tell you the summary, and then I might ask um, Dr. Scott because she she has worked specifically with these patients. But it's we know the literature has showed us that there are significant harms um, of of abortion. We know that this can affect women not only physically but emotionally. We know that from a physical perspective, she is in significant harm of you know just hemorrhage of um, infection if there is some of the retained products. And this is where, you know, I'm a scientist, not an MD, so I'll let, you know, Dr. Scott and Dr. Lyle talk more about this. But then there's also on record, we know from the research that the women, there is a significant uh, risk of um, mental health issues related to depression, anxiety, um, even suicide. And so I think I'll, I'll let Ingrid maybe talk more specifically about some of those numbers. Yeah, Ingrid, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, we could talk all day because there's so much to be said, but it's very important to recognize that the data in the United States is terrible because we don't mandate reporting of anything. When we look at good quality data from European countries, we discovered that women are six times as likely to commit suicide in the year following an abortion than following childbirth. And other causes of death are higher, too. So women do, death is higher for them. Complications are higher. Bill was talking about this chemical abortion process. These women, and in many cases, young girls, because there is no lower age limit, often will see their child in the toilet. At 10 weeks, he's about the size and shape of a gummy bear, clearly identifiable as a human being. What are the emotional ramifications of that? We have no idea, but they must be quite dramatic. And a lot of women fall into an abortion in crisis. They have relief that the crisis is over. But you know what? With time, their regret grows. And along with that anxiety, depression, substance use and abuse, um, self-harm. So we see all of these things. And fortunately, many women do be uh, do get cared for in the crisis pregnancy centers after the fact but many women don't. Many women suffer alone. They're embarrassed. They don't want to talk about their abortion. And yet, internally, they're suffering for years over what they've done. I wish we had more time to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, it's probably a separate that's really that's probably a separate podcast all by itself. I mean, I, the, um, 
the, this is actually one of the things that we want to cover. So I'm going to try and summarize here because our time is gone. So we've talked about the misconception that has that deals with conception per se, uh, and and that life begins from the very new life. Oh, Bill, I'm, I'm listening. Uh, new life begins at the moment of of conception, and all the potential for life. Uh, that one needs is there from the very beginning. So, so that viability is not is not a category to apply to this conversation, because in one sense, uh, viability uh, is is a is a function of what of what has been generated in creation in the relationship between uh, the developing child and the mother, and and that's designed to work that way. Uh, the second thing that we've done is we've talked about a distinction in the kinds of of uh, efforts that are made to stop uh, an abortion, whether it be the morning after pill taken at right after intercourse or a pill taken uh, several weeks afterwards that's designed to reverse the gestation process. And, and, and the fact that that can be reversed if a person makes a decision and says, oh, I've made a mistake, is an important um, thing to be, realize. We've also discussed um, the, the way in which um, this has now become a state-by-state state issue uh, socially and legally for us, um, despite the morality that undergirds the idea of, no, this is a this is a human being that's precious in the sight of God from the very beginning. And then the last thing that we've dealt with, and I really do think this is under-discussed, is the impact on women who make a decision for an abortion and then have to go through what I would call the aftermath of that decision in order to, um, in order to um, cope with what it is that's taken place and the impact that that has had on them, either physically because of the way the abortion has taken place or emotionally because in their soul they know that they've made a decision that they have come to regret. So, um, and now the last question I'll ask all of you briefly is, did I miss anything? Those are the big. <laughs> those are the big four that I got out of this hour. Um, did I miss anything? Anything you want to add to the list that I've given? That's in, good. And I'm in the it. moment. I'm I in the moment of it. a committee meeting where, hearing no objections, we move on. <laughs> you're you on Yeah. Uh, so. I absolutely love this. I thank you, Ingrid, Tara, Bill, for joining us uh, for this table podcast. And I would love to do something in the very near future to talk about the impact uh, that abortion has on women. Because I think sometimes when we when we can see, yes, that the gospel is on the top front from the womb to the tomb. Life is is life, and it's important to God. And but then on the back end, that life uh, that you will go on without. Um, the child that you had is an altogether different story. And I think women need to know what that means to them so that they don't walk in shame and so that they still walk in freedom with dignity and that hopefully you offer some information to a woman before she gets to the point where she even wants to terminate. And I, I really think that's where the ground is for this, is to eradicate the fear and to replace it with the truth of God. And you all are helping us to do to do that. And thank you for being here. 
Oh, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I also oh, want to add my thanks for your joining us and helping us with this topic. I'm sure we'll come back and discuss um, <laughs> part two, uh, but this has been helpful, and hopefully um, those who have listened and benefited, I'm sure they've benefited from the conversation. So we thank you for being a part of the table. We hope you'll join us again soon. If you want to see other uh, episodes of the Table podcast, you can go to voice.dts edu slash table podcast and you can get over 600 hours of discussion on issues of god and culture which is a nice way of saying we discuss anything and everything we thank you for being a part of our day today and we wish you all the best thanks for listening to the table podcast dallas theological seminary teach truth love well This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.